0: Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynne Reyes, and I'm your host today as we cover the topic of RAD, ODD, ADD and ADHD. Oh, my. More on that later. Our guest today is Jen Ranter-Hook, who has a master's and is the founder and executive director of Replanted, a ministry that provides post-placement support to foster and adoptive families through support groups and the Replanted Conference. And we have um, used their program as well for Help One Child and hosted their uh, conference. In fact, I met Jen and her husband tabling for her book and curriculum at the Refresh Conference a few years back in Washington. Um, Jen received her master's degree in clinical psychology from Wheaton College. She previously worked as a trauma therapist for children and adolescents in foster care. She is the author of Replanted, Faith-Based Support for Foster and Adoptive Families, A Mom to One, a wife to Josh, and a Canadian. Jen directs the Replanted Conference um, that I mentioned we hosted locally in San Jose. We're excited to do it again in fall 2022. Um, She's collaborating more with us as well as a parent trainer, a blog, and a podcast contributor. So Jen, we're really excited. I'm so happy to have you here with me today. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And can you tell us uh, more about Replanted and this passion you hold for supporting foster, adoptive, and kinship families, just to introduce our listeners a little bit more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was working as a therapist in the foster care system in the state of Illinois, and I was doing trauma counseling with kids and teens and birth families. Um and it was during that time I started to realize the church was really good at encouraging families to say yes to the adoption and foster care journey, but I did not see as many churches saying yes to providing the support that the families really needed. Um, we know that all kids through foster care and adoption have experienced trauma, uh, and that can be really hard for both the kids and the parents. Um, and so it was in that experience as I was working with families in foster care that were feeling so under-supported and alone in their journeys that I felt like, hey, we need to do something to support our families, um, not only for the parents, but for the kids. You know, I was working with a little boy in foster care. His mom had been abusing substances. Uh, he was removed from her care, um, and he wanted to go home so badly, you know, and so now he's living in a stranger's home. He wants his mom to get healthy. She's not getting healthy. You know, there that's a lot uh, to carry. And how do you go to school as a seven-year-old with all of that that you're experiencing, all those feelings? And you know, you're not, you don't really talk about that stuff. Right. And so we wanted to create spaces where, uh, parents and kids could come together and know you're not alone where you could share all the parts of your stories, all the hard, the challenges, the difficulties, the ugly side, um, and feel supported and encouraged and just experience God's grace as well. And so we started replanted and we built support groups, uh, for our community where people could come together in those shared journeys. Uh, that are you're speaking the same language you know um when i share my story and someone else is like yeah me too i've been through that you're like yes this is you're my person right there's a bond that's formed in that and so we knew that our families could experience that uh, and get that emotional support so we started support groups and then we grew to a national ministry and now we help churches and organizations and individuals build support groups in their communities for parents and kids. And then as part of that, we also do a conference every year. We host it in Chicago, uh, but we also simulcast it out to locations uh, around the U.S. Uh, and Canada and the world. Um, and you, you, you guys hosted it as yes. well. But it's a great opportunity as well to provide emotional and informational support to parents. Um, we do a lot of refreshing fun, no way gifts. Uh, we amplify voices of adoptees, foster, alone, birth parents as well. Um, We offer really valuable training that's specific to the journey. And we do, and we sprinkle lots of fun in there as well. And so uh, that's what we do to provide post-placement support to families and why we do it.
0: Yes. Yes. Thank you. We've loved using your uh, curriculum for some of our support groups and the conference was just phenomenal. So we're, we're so excited to have this collaboration and, and continue this conversation. Let's jump into our topic now. Um, Hearing all these labels and diagnoses, acronyms can be overwhelming, I know, to me, to parents, teachers, much less to children. So can you share uh, your perspective and philosophy about diagnosing youth in care or who are adopted or in general?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, any child that's impacted by foster care or adoption uh, has experienced trauma uh, and that's... um, That's something that we really need to be honest about and step into. Um, Our kids have experienced a lot of grief and loss uh, and that's part of their journeys. And there's a lot of diagnoses that can come as a result of experiences that we've had. Um, And so I know we're gonna touch on a lot of different acronyms and (laughs) things that can get really overwhelming. But uh, one of the things that I would say about this is a a clear diagnosis can be really helpful in understanding how to walk alongside your child in their healing process. Uh, so the first thing that I would say about this topic in general is um, if you have a child that is really struggling, um, they've experienced some hard things, you know, there's they've got uh, behavioral difficulties. A lot of times what kids can't talk out, they act out. Uh, that's very normal. These are not bad kids in any way. They've gone through really, really hard things and so it's important for us to get professionals and people in place around them to help in the healing process. Um, Therapists can be very helpful. Uh, Being able to work with a trauma counselor or somebody who's adoption uh, competent is very, very helpful. Um, A step further, though, uh, that I wanna clarify is getting your child diagnosed. Um, One of the uh, metaphors, if you will, I like to use is, you know, if if you have a head cold, nowadays you're like, is it the flu? Is it COVID? Like, what is it, right? The symptoms can look very similar, but what what is actually driving uh, what's happening? Uh, for children, when we're, when we're getting a mental health assessment or a diagnosis, uh, there is a difference between having a counselor that just has a master's degree giving a diagnosis versus a clinician that has a PhD or a PsyD and therefore the title of doctor in front of their name. Um, those are psychological evaluations that can only be done by people that hold doctorate degrees, um, whether that's a PhD or a PsyD. So when you're trying to get clarity uh, on what's happening with your child, I highly recommend getting a psychological evaluation um, because they have the ability to run a more in-depth test. Uh, there's psychological uh, assessments and batteries that they can use that we aren't privy to with master's degrees. Um, so if you're feeling like I don't know what's happening with my child, or I've been working with this, you know, clinician, this therapist who's awesome, and we thought we thought the child had RAD, but I'm not seeing progress, it might be worth going down the road of getting a psychological evaluation to get more clarity, um, and therefore a more robust and in-depth treatment plan.
0: Okay, that's a, that's a great distinction. Um, I know we hope to discuss RAD, ODD, ADD, and ADHD today. Um, can you share maybe with starting more about RAD and how parents can uh, support healthier attachment with a child being placed, um, or maybe someone who's already a member of the family, an adopted child? With
1: rad. Yeah. So rad, for those of you who don't know what rad is, rad is reactive attachment disorder, and it's a trauma stress related disorder. Um, and so that is, uh, I think this one is one of the more misunderstood diagnoses, if you will. Um, for kiddos who have uh, rad, this is typically marked by the absence or adequate caregiving of somebody in their life during childhood. Uh, So this is very um, for kids who were raised in institutions or orphanages where there was a high child to uh, caregiver ratio where their needs weren't adequately met, or for kids that experienced uh, severe neglect uh, prior to coming into foster care, um, you know, being raised in institutions, things like that can really influence ability and a, a child's ability to attach, right? So we know for kids, babies, right, when you have a baby cry uh, and you come and you meet their needs, you're actually developing uh, a trust cycle with that baby. The baby knows, hey, this person, my mom or dad, they're going to meet my needs. When I cry, I have a voice and somebody comes and they take care of me. For kids who didn't have that experience, they cried and cried and cried, no one came or they've had very dysfunctional or inadequate uh, caregiving, um, that's really going to Uh, hinder their ability to build that trusting relationship with the parent in their life. Um, One of the things, even for kids that have been raised in in institutions or have gone into foster care, uh, this diagnosis is still actually fairly uncommon with less than than 10% of children being diagnosed with RAD. Um, but one of the things, one of the defining characteristics of RAD is it's, it's more of an internalizing disorder with depressive symptoms. Um, so these are kids who are constantly emotionally withdrawn, very flat effect, um, and they rarely seek comfort or respond to comfort. So if they get hurt, they fall down, you know, like my daughter, she, she falls down, she comes to me, she seeks me out, but also when I pick her up and I comfort her, she calms down. For kids with reactive attachment disorder, that's not the case. They might fall down and they they don't cry, they don't even show the emotion, they don't seek a caregiver for comfort. And if they do, the caregiver is not able to comfort them. Now, as a parent, that's hard, right? When you're doing all the nurturing, caring, loving things towards your child and they're unresponsive, that's, a, that's very, very hard to enter into. Um, Kids with red also show some social and emotional disturbances, so they're not very responsive socially to others, to peers, um, and then they can have like this unexplained irritability, sadness, fearfulness in situations where there is no threat or no fear uh, around, and so that can be a little baffling for parents as well. Um, but when it comes to RAD, we're really trying to form and help a child heal in that attachment. And so being very present as a caregiver and continuously meeting your child's needs is going to be very, very important. Um, we know that children's attachment can be healed uh, and it can take a while though. So this this can sometimes take a few years. Typically children get diagnosed with RAD under the age of five years old. That's where we see, you know, that, birth to five-year range that they didn't have adequate caregiving, we see the biggest impact there. But it can sometimes take a few years for a child to really heal from the lack of the the nurturing experiences that they needed. We encourage parents to be very intentional with children, um, you know, getting down on their level, being very playful, having those one-on-one times, um, you know, modeling and mimicking their behaviors. So playing their way, (laughs) these are all super important things. You want to build those trust banks as well, uh, with these, you know, with kids with trauma histories and kids with rad, um you know, a lot of times for parents compliance is always a goal, right? Like when we say something, we want our children to listen and obey. Um, that's great, except um, that's always going to keep our kids and us in a bit of a tense relationship because they're going to have a really hard time following through on those instructions. And so when you can be as playful as possible and find yes opportunities all throughout the day with them to build that trust that, hey, my voice is heard, my parent loves me, they said yes to me, continue to build that trust, that's going to be super, super important.
0: You're making me think of a, a family we work with Um that is doing yes days, and our family yes. hasn't tried that, but we're kind of curious about exploring that. Our kids love the idea, obviously, of us saying yes. Yeah, yeah, there's right. a
1: great Netflix film on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, I love that. Yeah, like giving your child a yes day, like you're going to say yes to the craziest, goofiest, funniest things, and they just get this moment of really intentional connection with you as well. Um, yes. I think is awesome. So, we know playfulness disarms fear as well. So as much as you can be playful, get down on your children's level, play their way. Um, you know, meet their needs continuously. It's going. It's going to take so much repetition uh, to rebuild that trust that they never received. So give yourself so much grace and your child so much grace and patience uh, as you work to restore that.
0: I have a question. What if you have a child who likes to bring in uh, violence or? um, inappropriate words or a lot of potty humor with their kind of joyful, silly way of playing? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it would be how, is it dysfunctional? Um, is it impeding on their ability to build relationship? Um, I mean, potty jokes and language for kids is pretty (laughs) common actually. So, um, but you know, obviously, sometimes our kids have a really hard time with boundaries as well. So they might not have a sense of themselves in space that they're harming other people. Um, Who knows what was modeled to them as well around language and things like that. And so it's also okay to draw a boundary as well um, where you say, Hey, it's also my job as your parent to keep you safe and to keep others safe. And so when we, you know, pulling hair, you know, we always talk about no hurts, right? Um, if you're, and if you guys, some of you are TBRI people, you'll know this, right? We talk about no hurts physically, no hurts emotionally. Um, and so using language and physical um, violence can be hurt, hurting uh, and hurtful. And so that's an okay boundary to draw. Uh, and what are substitutes? What are ways that we can play to get that aggression out that's not hurting others or ourselves? Um, and to, you know, what's language that we can use in different ways? Um, to help our kids still express themselves, but in a way that's appropriate.
0: I love that. Yes. Thank you. Um, can you also share more, um, about the ODD diagnosis and some practical tips for supporting a child with this diagnosis? Yes. So
1: for those of you who don't know what ODD is, it's oppositional defiant disorder. And I'm sure some of you are like, yes, my child is super (laughs) defiant. I, this is me. Um, I I always want to use caution with ODD and this is exactly why I also encourage parents if you get an ODD um, diagnosis, but it's not from a psychologist to actually have a psychological evaluation. I think some of our kids are misdiagnosed here Um, because kids who've experienced trauma uh, can seem very defiant and seem like it's willful defiance when it's really survival strategies. And so if we are proceeding and, you know, coming at our kids through the lens of their being defiant versus this is their trauma survival mode. Um, we're, that's two different ways of responding to our kid that can look very, very different. Um, But for those of you who don't know what ODD is, this is typically characterized by uh, kids and uh, teens who are, they lose their temper easily, they're very touchy, they get easily annoyed, you know, they get angry and resentful, they argue a lot, Um, they don't like to listen to or comply with authority. Um, they blame others for their problems. They deliberately annoy people, um, and they can and they can feel vindictive. So some, so a child with ODD, these this would be some of the symptomology. It's important to note the symptomology though um, needs to be directed towards others beyond just the family. It, this is very common with towards siblings, right? I mean, I I was all these things to my brother. Uh, so there is actually it's in the DSM five, which is the diagnostic uh, manual that uh, clinicians use. It, you know, it, it very clearly states it has to be directed towards people other than siblings. Uh, but you typically see this diagnosis kind of happening in elementary school age, up in the teens. Um, and this can be really hard because... Um, Kids, again, with trauma histories, they learn to trust no one but themselves. So they're in charge. I, you know, I don't trust you. I'm not going to listen to you. It can sometimes be the mantra. Um, and again, that's not defiance, that's survival, right? Um, so I think that's really important to get clarity around here. What's driving what's driving these behaviors we're seeing. We also know kids with trauma have a really hard time with emotional regulation. So they do get easily frustrated and lose their temper and whatnot. Um, and so the symptomology can look similar, both for trauma and for true ODD. Um, this, when you we're approaching kids that have true oppositional defiant disorder, or even kids that have um, this kind of it looks similar, but it's trauma. Uh, we really want to model um, appropriate behaviors to kids. And so a lot of times, even with younger kids, we'll start doing some different role plays around like good and bad consequences. So helping kids draw connections between words and actions and how the, how those affect um, their ability to be in a relationship with others. So. You know, uh, when I was doing counseling with kids, a lot of times I had like different stuffed animals and things like that. And so I would grab a cat and I'd play really rough with it, you know, and then I'd talk about the good consequences of playing that way in the bed and get them to identify it. You know, what are the good consequences of me like roughhousing this cat and hitting it and doing these things? You know, a lot of times they'd say there aren't any good consequences. And then I'd say, okay, what are the bad consequences, right? And they might say, well, it might hurt the cat. The cat might not want to play with us anymore, things like that. And then I demonstrate appropriate behavior and being in relationship with people. And then we ask good and bad consequences for that and help kids identify it. And then they're drawing the parallels between that and their lives when they're in relationship with peers at school and with um, adult uh, authority and things like that. Um, So that can be super helpful as well doing different role plays, um, can be helpful as well. Um, you know, Karen Purvis does a lot around with respect or no respect. And so when kids, uh, sometimes it it can be a bit of an impulse thing. Um, but if a kid stopped talks back or refuses to comply, um, then we might just be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that showing respect or no respect and get them to try to regroup there. um, Again, we know playfulness disarms fear, playfulness can keep things light. With kids that have ODD or any sort of defiance type uh, behaviors, we don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. It's very easy as parents to get stuck in a power struggle here with your kids and you want to avoid that as much as possible. You want to be authoritative without being authoritarian, (laughs) Um, but this is also a great spot where uh, giving, you know, kids that maybe want to push those boundaries, sometimes we really want to dig in, right? We're like, no, I said, no, you're listening, right? And now we're just like escalating and blowing things up is this a place where we can maybe teach them to ask for a compromise? Like, can I have five more minutes of screen time? Or you give them two choices if they're refusing to put their shoes on, you know, you can put your pink shoes on or your purple shoes, you know, you can, um, I can help you put your shoes on or your dad can help you put your shoes on, you know, and, and try to organize their environment as much as possible. Um, For kids that do have ODD though, I highly recommend making sure you have a professional therapist walking alongside you because this can be really, really hard. Um, It can be very discouraging as parents feel like you're always having negative interactions with your kids instead of positive interactions. And so um, having somebody that's working with your kids and with you as a family can be really helpful and empowering. Um, But try to find those positives, right? Try to find those days where you can do the yes days, do things that are, um, you can avoid the control power, power struggle as well.
0: Yes. And I I imagine for some of our families uh, listening, if this isn't showing up at school, only at home, then that's kind of a clue in that it's not ODD, that it's more likely a trauma behavior.
1: Yeah, especially or, trauma we see a lot of times come out with the people that you're closest and safest with. So ODD, really, you want this to be happening with like peers at school, teachers. If it's only happening to you, it's more likely not ODD.
0: Okay. And even you saying that this is really common for the primary caregivers and in the family dynamic, I think, you know, that may feel somewhat reassuring or affirming to our parents that that are doing this um, Love and parenting and work of like <laughs> yeah. um, you know supporting a child from hard places that can can become you know exhausting, right? Yeah, if the yeah. child does present a lot of defiant behavior,
1: yeah. And the thing is too, some of it's normal, it's normal for kids to test boundaries, um, to like start to find their independence and individuate from their parents. So some of this is really normal. We say that for kids under five to get diagnosed with ODD, these symptoms need to be happening almost every single day. Because, I mean, like a four-year-old, they easily get frustrated. They have temper tantrums all the time, right? That's pretty normal. Their brains are still developing. They don't have good emotional regulation yet, stuff like that. And then especially kids with trauma on top of that, they, you know, it's even more inhibited for them. And so uh, kids in elementary age up to teens, we say, you know, this should be happening at least three or four days a week for six months. So it needs to be pretty uh pretty regular occurrence that's happening for a prolonged period of time not just kind of scattered here or there or a phase you know um, for it to be true
0: okay yeah um moving on to our next topic our next acronyms what does an add or adhd diagnosis mean for a child and how we might have practical tips of approaching and parenting that child
1: yes so um ADD stands for attention deficit disorder, and that's actually a dated term now. Uh, they got rid of that like official diagnosis, I'd say about 30 years ago, and it's all uh, captured under the ADHD de- uh, diagnosis now. Um, and so this one is. Um, this one's really important. I see kind of both sides of the equation here where kids truly do have ADHD uh, and aren't getting the supports they need. And then this is probably the one also that people or parents are more worried that it's overdiagnosed as well. Uh, So ADHD, really, we're kind of looking at two different areas. There's the inattention category of ADHD, and then there's the hyperactivity impulsivity category of ADHD. Um, a child can have just the inattentive part, a child can have just the hyperactivity impulsivity parts, or they can have both, okay? Um, and so for this one, um, the other thing, it, again, it's important to, you know, think about how trauma is impacting um, this as well, because for the inattentive part, this is a kid that has, like, fails to give close attention to detail, makes careless mistakes in work, has difficulty sustaining tasks, um, doesn't seem to listen when they're being spoken to, they don't follow through on instructions, um, have a hard time finishing schoolwork, things like that, Um, they avoid things or dislike, you know, sorry, they avoid activities they dislike, they lose things often. They're extracted by external st- stimuli, forgetful, stuff like that. So that's the inattentive piece. Um, now, this is also true for kids with trauma, right? Because when a child has ex- experienced trauma, they, uh, the simplest things can uh, trigger them, you know, a sound, a smell, a sight. A lot of times kids with trauma are replaying the things that they've experienced. Uh, They're trying to actively avoid uh, the things they've experienced. And so this can look similar, right? You can have a child that's constantly assessing their surrounding, uh, trying to assess is it safe here, right? Which can look like ADHD, a kid that has a hard time focusing and paying attention and staying on track. A lot of times too with trauma, kids can be more depressed, um, not motivated. They can be thinking about other things and distracted. And so uh, there is definitely overlap in the symptomology here between ADHD and trauma uh, that we want to pay attention to. Um, the hyperactivity impulsivity piece of ADHD, this is kids that have a hard time sitting still, they're squirming, they leave their seat all the time, even when they're supposed to be seated. Um, they run about, they climb on things when it's inappropriate to do so. Um, they have a hard time playing quietly. They're constantly on the go, like constantly needing more and more and more and more. Um, they might talk excessively, blurt out answers in the classroom before, you know, the teacher called on them, stuff like that. Um. Uh, one note here to Kristen is um, a lot of kids with trauma also have sensory processing difficulties, and so there can be similarities there, right, oh, between yes. a kid that needs sensory input versus a kid that has ADHD. Um, We know for ADHD, there is a strong genetic component. So if a child's biological parent had ADHD, it's highly likely that they will have it as well. Um, And so we know kids as well that had a low birth rate are two to three times more likely for ADHD kids that were exposed to a parent who's uh, a birth mom who is smoking um, while they were pregnant are more likely to have ADHD. So there are some risk factors as well. Um, But, again, this is where it's really helpful to get that psychological evaluation. Is it trauma uh, inattentiveness? Is it sensory processing, hyperactivity? Is it ADHD? Uh, What's going on here? Because when we know that we can really um, meet the needs of our kids and make sure we're getting them the best treatment possible. Um, For kids that have ADHD, um, psychotropic medications are very helpful uh, because there is a lot that's happening in the brain here that they cannot control. So we say about 50%, you know, uh, medication is helpful and then 50% therapy. Um, so doing a combination of both, that's kind of also how, you know, it's ADHD. If a child doesn't respond to a psychotropic medication, um, that typically means like maybe it's not actually ADHD, it might be more of a sensory processing issue or more trauma, uh, influenced, um, ADHD, if that makes sense, um, the other thing is, uh, so when you're working with kids that have these symptoms, clear directives are really helpful. want to keep things very concise use as few words as possible organize their environment as much as possible so instead of saying clean up your toys well boom that i mean if you walk into my playroom it's like (laughs) i don't even want to clean that up so if you have a child that's like can't organize their environment this way it's gonna be real real overwhelming um so being specific can you pick up all the lego pieces and put it in the blue bin pick up all the train pieces and put it in the white bin so try to break it down organize it and small tasks is helpful so schoolwork, um if they look at all the homework they have to do well, that's super overwhelming so get a piece of paper and cover up all the other questions they have to answer so they can focus on just one at a time uh, and walk through it with them also know as a parent you're going to need to give your kids probably more time it's going to take them longer to do the homework, longer to put their shoes on and get ready to go out the door for school, things like that. You need to build that extra time into your day.
0: And Jen, uh, what if yeah. what if you are uh, the kind of parent that isn't highly structured or organized yourself and having a child who's experienced trauma, you know, they seek that, especially with a D- ADHD diagnosis. What do you recommend if that's not a parent's natural uh, skill set?
1: Oh yeah, I mean this is hard because I will say you're going to need to adapt your parenting. Yes. <laughs> um, if you really want your child to succeed, you're gonna you're gonna have to roll up your sleeves and be like, okay, I'm in it just as much as you, and I'm gonna try to help organize your environment. And so, um, yeah, I mean, be working with a therapist and try as much as possible to follow the therapist lead there, but um, it's gonna be a lot harder. if for a, a normal child in an unstructured environment, you know, it might not be quite as hard. But for a child that doesn't have the brain for that, has a trauma impact. We, again, like we said, you know, all kids through foster care and adoption have experienced trauma. We just we need to help set them up for success in that way. So um, again, visuals are really helpful. So um, creating like having calendars with pictures instead of words. We recommend using seven words or less when you're trying to give your child an instruction as well. That's a lot easier for them to process and follow through on. Decreasing distractions in the home. So if you have them doing homework at the kitchen table, but the dog's running around, the TV's on the background, dinner's on, you know, the stove. That's going to be a lot, you know? So you might have to reevaluate where homework's done and how it's done to decrease distractions. Therapeutically, I do a lot of things as well to help kids kind of catch some of the impulse control when we're looking at the hyperactivity impulsivity piece. Um, so, you know, I would have as simple things as like if we're playing catch together before uh, a child would throw the ball, they would have to ask me, like, can I throw the ball to you? Um, then they'd ask me, can I do you want me to throw it? bounce it or roll it, you know, and then I give an answer and that's just, again, just helping them stop, catch, check in with the person they're playing with. And then I would do it back and model it to them. So we're doing it together. It's all about connection. Um, You know, same thing with like silly putty or um, silly string, right? You put that in a child's hand, somebody, a kiddo that's got (laughs) ADHD or impulsivity difficulties, the first thing they're going to do is squirt you, right? So giving clear instructions right away, like I'm going to give this to you before, before you can start me, you have to ask permission, right? So you're just, again, practicing, getting them to catch themselves, building that muscle memory around that as well. The more we rehearse these things and slow down in that way, the better uh, it's helpful for our kids. Um, Again, we can talk all we want, but we know rehearsal actually creates the muscle memory and helps our kids in that way. So doing that is really, really helpful. And you can do that with any activity, you know, you can get as creative as you want. Um, The other thing is the how's your engine running can be really helpful. For those of you who have never heard of it, it's just a plate divided into three different colors. There's the red zone, the green zone, and the blue zone. The red zone is for times when kids feel overstimulated, just like super hyper and crazy energy and overwhelmed. Uh, The green zone is when your engine's running just right. And then the blue zone is when you feel like your engine's running too low. You feel really down, you know, not motivated, unfocused, stuff like that. We talk about how sometimes in the red, we should be in the red right? And I'll ask kids, when do you think we should be in the red zone? You know, and they'll be like gym time, right? Outdoor recess. Absolutely. Those are times you should be in the red zone. Um, Should we be in the red zone when it's time for class and we're supposed to be listening to our teacher? Probably not. We should probably be in the green zone then. And should, is there times we should be in the blue zone? And kids will say, yeah, maybe like bedtime, right? Getting ready for for bed and trying to get our bodies ready to sleep. So um, we talk about the zones, how they're all good, but there's different times when we should be in one versus the other and then giving our kids coping strategies to help with that. So, and this is sometimes where OTs occupational therapists can be very helpful in meeting our kids sensory needs. If they're fidgeters, um, if they're, you know, they need that input, these can be coping strategies kind of built into helping them be able to focus and be attentive to their days.
0: I love those practical, playful suggestions of, you know, how to integrate The rehearsal piece of impulse control in um, catch or playing with silly string or um, even the engine um, kind of visual, you would encourage us to hang that in our home to use Mm -hmm. as a visual with a child as a parent, not just with the therapist, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always think that parents should be fully engaged with their kids in this way and doing everything with them because A, connection is good, but for a parent-child, and B, there's so much stigma around mental health. So if your child's the one going to therapy and they're the ones that have to do all these interventions, it's going to make them feel like something's wrong with them, right? If you're a parent and you're doing it with them, it's going to normalize it, right? We're in this together. I'm doing it with you. We all have struggles. It's okay, right? And so you want to be doing it together um and we all have things to learn so i i mean i do i love doing counseling even as an adult right like for own personal growth and stuff so to be able to step in with your kids in this way can just be really great bonding time
0: yes and so because our kids have disrupted attachment and have experienced trauma do you recommend then the the therapy model would more likely include the family together the children with parents and yeah i think it's
1: on the age of the kids, but um, I think always, you know, a lot of times kids do need individual therapy. They need their own person that they can really confide in and just build rapport and feel safe to just talk about all their things. But that, it you should always have a therapist that's bringing the family in every so often, you know, every couple weeks or every week, um, that's also empowering you as a family system to be able to walk in the healing process together. Because um, if I'm just doing stuff in counseling with a kid, but the parents are still doing the same thing in the home, we're not going to see as much progress. Um, And so you really do want the both, the both and in that situation. Also too, like for some of you parents that are listening, I mean, you might be in really hard situations right now with your kids and you might need your own therapy too, where it's not just for your kids, but it's for you to process your secondary trauma or your, um, you know, your fatigue and just all the feelings that you might be having as well. Um, so yeah, I'm a big proponent of therapy and just having that space uh, to be able to process and work through everything.
0: Yes, it's like the ultimate self-care, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I know, I get an hour and you're going to listen to all my stuff? Perfect. <laughs> no one else gives me an hour. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs>
1: right. yeah, it can, yeah, it can be really helpful and empowering. Um, a lot of times, too, I want to speak into this. Sometimes we think our kids are going to outgrow this, right? Like, okay, I brought them into my home. Um, Adoption is going to cure trauma. It's not true. That is lifelong for our kids um, all their experiences who's who's my birth family where did I come from like there's so many questions and different understandings that we're going to have and kids you know young as they get older they're going to experience their stories in different ways as they develop right um, and so we really want to make sure you're empowering your kid to be able to like this is not something we need to shy away from and we're gonna be intentional about stepping in with you um, into this work
0: Yes. Um, Each developmental stage. Right. It's one more layer for them to process. Yes. Yeah. Um, And overall, you know, no matter what diagnosis our children make um, come with that join our family or that they receive while in our family. Um, I know you've talked about some ideas. Do you have any other um, suggestions about therapeutic approaches or helpful professionals to involve in creating more support and more possibility of healing and wholeness for our kiddos, for our families?
1: Yeah, I have a few different thoughts here. Um, I, I think it's really important. Not all therapists are the same. Everyone just kind of like doctors in any profession, everyone has their different areas of expertise So you really wanna make sure that you're working with somebody that is trauma competent um, and maybe even has, you you know, specific experience working with those and families impacted by adoption or foster care. Um, That can be very, very helpful. The other thing is rapport is really important as well. A lot of times therapists will even do like initial session short or free to see if there's like rapport um, and relationship there if you sit down with a therapist and your kid isn't vibing with them and you're not clicking with them, that's okay. Find a good fit for your family. Um, I actually just talked to somebody who is, uh, her son was going through a really, really hard time. Uh, He is a therapist, but she wasn't sure he was trauma competent, but they had a good relationship. And I was like, don't like, don't take him away from that therapist as a team. When a team finds a therapist they like, you got to keep that therapist. That's a big deal. You know? So rapport is really, really important. Don't, devalue that in any way. Um, I think the other thing that's important is having support around your whole family uh, for both you as the parents and as the kids. Like I said, it's so empowering to be able to go to spaces with other people that understand the journey where you don't have to explain yourself. And same with your kids, where they can be with others who who get, uh, you know, um, the impact of foster care and adoption, the questions they might have and the curiosity and the what ifs and all that stuff. Uh, and then the last that I would say mentors are really important. We know that one mentor that's outside the family network can ju- drastically change the trajectory of a child's life. And so it's, if at if it all possible, if there are mentors in your area, especially mentors, uh, like maybe adult adoptees or foster alumni who can, you know, invest in your kids and let them know, like, you're not alone. I've been through this too. I've asked all those questions as well be really, really helpful for, for your kiddos. So I would, I would say those, those things are the most important.
0: Yes. And, um, that's one of the things I love about, uh, like going to support groups is we are interacting with other families. Our kids are getting to know peers that in the childcare offerings that are adopted or, in the foster care system. And then it sounds like even building out those mentors that are older and can really model for our children that kind of, um, journey, right. That journey of identity. Yeah. Um, what about for, uh, if people are listening to this and the pandemic's still going on and I know a lot of telehealth and counseling is happening virtually at uh, what age might that be appropriate or work? Or um, if it's not possible in person, should families pause? You know, I think this is a real struggle too with finding the right therapeutic uh, fits or professionals to work with. Do you have any um, wisdom on that or any suggestions?
1: Yeah, um, you know, that's hard, right? COVID has made everybody pivot um, in this way. And so um, I would not, I would always seek therapeutic support if your child needs it. I wouldn't push pause on that. It's, it's too important to, to wait a few months, especially because kids are developing so quickly and, um, you know, their brains are growing and their comprehension's growing. And so you always want to make sure that they get the support they need. Um, you know, it's, that's tricky, right? Because for younger kids, a lot of times they're not talking as much. So for me, when I was working with like the three to 10 year olds, we were doing play therapy, you know, um, Art therapy, a lot of stuff like that, very hands-on. It's possible to do virtually. It does look different. I've done it virtually before, um, you know, so I would say in-person's great, and if you're not comfortable with in-person yet, that's okay, do, do telehealth, you know. Um, therapists are great at getting creative and engaging kids virtually, um, and so, and, and there's training around that, so don't think that it's gonna be subpar or not as good. Um, teens and adults, obviously, are a little bit better at verbally expressing themselves and working through things in that way. Um, now, still, even with my teens, a lot of times we were playing games to talk, you know, like the boys we were shooting hoops and playing Jenga, and that's how they would open up. So, you know, you just it's a different experience in person than virtually, but they're, they're both valuable.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. And do you have anything else you'd like to add, um, or in conclusion, as we wrap up this conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, just hold on to hope. Um, you know, there is no magic wand. There is no quick fix for us or for our kids. You know, we've all experienced things, um, that we need to work through. And so I think just, uh, being able to step in and persevere in love and grace, uh, and willingness to keep showing up, uh, is, is so important. Um, for any of you that are really in the thick of it with your kids these are not bad kids they're super precious they're really great um, and they've experienced really hard things and so keep that on your mind when you feel like you're at wit's end or you're totally burnt out and exhausted um, our kids have been through a lot um, and two like we have a god that loves us more loves our kids more than we could possibly ever love our kids and love ourselves and so just Laying that at the feet
0: of Jesus, I think, on a regular basis is what we can do as well. Thank you. Yes, I know you're wonderful and Replanted is wonderful at bringing that faith component in that is such a source of support and such a source of hope for us that we're not alone in this. yeah. Um, exactly. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm so excited. We got to record this first podcast together. Thank you so much, Jen, for your time, your insights. I know um, I've gotten a lot of really helpful takeaways and some tips and things I'm going to try um, with my own children. And I'm sure other parents have as well. So thank you very much. And we look forward to having you again on our Bite Size Encouragement podcast soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.